This is an RNZ podcast. Kia ora and welcome to the Kim Hill Collection. It might surprise you to learn there actually aren't that many political interviews in this collection. I'm not really sure why. I guess they don't always age that well. But this 2019 chat with Dame Annette King, the universally respected former MP and current High Commissioner to Australia, was just too good to pass her. It's ostensibly to promote her biography, but as with so many of Kim's interviews, it's the chemistry and the unexpected revelations that elevate this one and really let us get to know Annette King on a different level. Hope you enjoy it. When Damonette King quit politics in 2017, she was New Zealand's longest-serving female MP, 33 years in Parliament, a couple of years out, in between, as Labour member for Horofenua, Miramar and Rongatai, through the Longy government, the Rogernomics, Helen Clark, John Key. Now, politics is a rough game, and enemies are made... It's pretty hard to find anyone who will say a bad word about Annette King. She became a dame under National, and she's now New Zealand High Commissioner for Canberra. Tough, compassionate, funny, hard-working, loyal, brave. She's a saint. The adjective scattered throughout the admittedly authorised biography by her friend and former press secretary John Harvey and political journalist Brent Edwards a mentor and a role model, according to the forward by Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. In many ways, of course, this book is a vanity publication. But then, Damonette has plenty to be vain about. For example, that complexion. Can she really be 71? She must have shunned the sun her entire life. No, I, I was a sun lover, a sunbather at Whangamata Beach for 20 years, lying there, covered in coconut oil. Um, I've been lucky. But you obviously didn't put it on your face. Um, yes, I used to. I wanted a brown face, of course, a brown everything. Well, how come I look like a saddle and you look like a fragrant, fresh flower? Well, I think one of the things that's a um, that's a, an expose, if you like, in the book is that my great great grandfather was the first Selenese settler to New Zealand, so I'm from Sri Lankan heritage, and I think perhaps I've got um, some of uh, that gene in me that means that I go brown in the sun, and uh, fortunately I have, I've um, managed to to um, stand the what the the the, the racks of the. Of have, the sun, then. have you been to Sri Lanka? Yes, I have. Did I, you feel like you were reconnecting with your roots? Not really. Um, I went to Colombo and then we, we went up to um, Candy where we thought he'd been born and actually found out that he was born in Trincomalee. Um, and and we didn't really know an awful lot about him, although we had a photograph and we knew, we knew um, our great great-grandmother's name and so on. But um, the Sri Lankan community knew a lot about him. How interesting. And uh, he came to New Zealand um, with a English wife um, and settled in Nelson. And his his profession was dentist, uh, pharmacist or chemist. Um, uh, he had, you know, one of those roles where you did everything, boot maker, <laughs> all round handyman. And he, uh, but he went chasing gold up up the Collingwood area. And in fact, there's a creek up there named after him, Apu Creek. 
Um, then he saw more gold in Australia and decided that uh, he'd go to Australia to Clunes in Victoria, where he passed away and his wife returned with her two daughters. And that's where my lineage come from, comes from. Oh. This all started with a discussion of your marvellous complexion. <laughs> um, I did not know until I read this book that your first marriage to Doug ended in divorce. He became transgender. Yes, he... Um, Petra. Petra. Yeah. And we, we married in 1968. And um, uh, about eight years after that, um, Petra, uh, then Doug, told me that he was transgender. So I didn't marry a, um, a known transgender to me. In fact, I didn't even know what a transgender person was because when you consider 1968 is a long time ago and a lot of issues weren't even discussed. Far less homosexuality, actually. But anyway, he told me one Saturday morning that um, that he he was a transgender person. He had always believed he was a woman, and that he had tried really hard not to be. Uh, that that he wanted me to know. Well, that really was the the end of our marriage. But we stayed together for another three years. Was it necessarily the end of your marriage? Well, I'm a woman, and I wanted to be married to a man or to be with a man, and and. And, and Petra wanted to be a woman. So I mean, in these non-binary days, sometimes people, you know, accommodate these things. But I know, no, and no. I saw that. And we, we, we visited a group called uh, Hadesia, and they gave advice to us. And some some people have stayed together as, as two women. But um, it wasn't me, and we, we parted very amicably. But... but uh, Doug did not become Petra until quite a number of, of years later, openly, um, and then in the last 15 years has lived openly um, as a woman. Um, but, of course, I had to then tell my family, who are very fond of Doug, and we remain and still remain very good friends, and he's the father of my only child. So so I needed to tell my elderly parents that, that Doug was coming for Christmas, but he wasn't going to be Doug. He was going to be Petra. And I, to this day, I admire my parents, who were always non-judgmental anyway. But, but I can remember my mother saying, "Well, it makes no difference to me," and my old dad saying, "Always welcome at our house." So, oh. um, Petra came that Christmas. That's as a extraordinary when you think about it, isn't it? It is at their age; they were in their eighties, and um, and you know, I, I've just I just marvel at their response. Um, and it did make no difference to them. Petra came, everyone in the family treated as if it had always been the case. But oh. I just know how hard it was for Doug um, to be a transgender person. And, and it gave me a lot of empathy and sympathy and understanding of, of someone that is different, that tries so hard not to be, but in the end accepts that's who they are and they need all the support they can get. Do you think that if that hadn't been your experience, you would have supported the Homosexual Law Reform Bill so wholeheartedly? I think I would have probably anyway, but it did it did educate me. It did it did form me, if you like, into into understanding that there were different people. I came from a small rural town where, you know, men were men and women were women and uh, women were in the house and men were out in the in the workforce. Um, even though my mother wasn't, but um, it's so so I had quite a narrow upbringing in some ways, although great freedom in a, of a small country town. So this did help shape me, um, but it, it got down to being a human rights issue. You were told, though, I think you were MP for Horofenua at that time, you were told that you would lose the seat 
by supporting the homosexual law reform. I bill. was. I, I was. And in fact, you increased your vote, didn't you? I doubled it, more than doubled the vote. And it was a, a real lesson that you must hold true to what you believe in in, in Parliament, and in, in, in particularly in those those moral issues. Uh, and and sitting on the fence, never a comfortable position. But those politicians that do, I think, end up in a, a terrible predicament. If you're true to what you believe in, in the end, people will either accept you as you are and and vote for you for whatever reason, but very few vote for just one reason, one purpose, one thing that you believe in. So I found that standing up for homosexual law reform, I was there alongside Fran Wilde, one of the, the most courageous politicians I've ever met. Um, and and I'm, I'm proud all these years later. What a difference it's made in our country. You presented yourself always as a fully rounded person, as you say, rather than a single issue politician and seemed to follow your conscience all the time. Were you ever in a corner? You had to follow the party line. You really hated doing it. Well, it was really only on moral issues that you that you have a different view. But you could say that those years, those those first years I was in Parliament, the years of Rogernomics, if you like, um, I followed the party line. I followed the caucus line. I followed the cabinet line. How did you remember which the party line was, was day to day in those days? Well, of course, the <laughs> the party line was the cabinet line, and it was dominated by some very very experienced politicians and and often said I went into Parliament one day I had been uh, drilling teeth and uh, a month later because Muldoon called a snap election I was um, a member of Parliament and with not much in between and not a lot of experience particularly in, in the economics area. In fact I fitted the Muldoon's description that most New Zealanders wouldn't know a deficit if they fell over one. So um, so I, I, I look back at that and think that there were times that, that if I knew more, if I'd thought perhaps more about it, be better informed, maybe I would have stood up against some things that then went on to become some of the downfall of, of the fourth Labour government. He had very bad breath, Muldoon. Do you think he had bad teeth? Um, I never got it close enough to his teeth. But, you know, when I first went into Parliament, I'd only ever seen him on television. I thought he was a big man. And when I got to Parliament, I couldn't believe this man. He was no taller than me because he'd always filled an entire TV screen. But over the years that I was there, and he was, I was there from 84 to 90 when he was there, and he, he went on to become the leader of the um, opposition after, straight after the election and before he got dumped by Jim McClay and so on. But by the last year I was in Parliament, I'll never forget, I was walking through the old billiard room that used to be there, now the Grand Hall. and he was, That says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It Back does. in the day. Billiard room. It, with, with five big billiard tables. But he was seated in one of the old leather chairs, slouched down so you only saw the top of his head. And as I walked past, he did that famous grunt and said to me, I hope you win, because it was going into the 1990 election. Well, he never got a lot right, because I lost. <laughs> but how strange that he should wish you well. Yes, it was strange, but I, I think um, over the, over the years he started he started off um, sort of making fun of women. And one of the th- stories in the book is when Fran Wilde and I were sitting together late at night in the house, and he came in in his usual state at that time of night, and he was uh, drunk. He mean. was yes, and he said, huh, 
I know who you two are going home with tonight, uh, implying we were going home with each other. We were very close friends, but no, we weren't going home together. Uh, Fran, as quick as a flash, uh, made fun of it. Um, but it went from there to, to every now and then um, he'd have a little conversation with me. And once we appeared together on the front page of the New Zealand Herald, it was a lovely photo, never been on the front page like that ever again, but I saw it the next day and I said to him, Sir Robert, you must be pleased to be seen with such a a beautiful woman such as myself. Jokingly, of course. And he grunted at me and said, I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, in in the end, he did wish me well. Um, And I don't really know why. You have managed to stay friends with people on both sides of the political spectrum, all sides of the political spectrum, as one would need to say these days. How do you think you've managed that? I mean, one of the revealing quotes on on the, the book is from Mike Moore, a joy to it with, women don't feel threatened by her and men like her. It's quite interesting, isn't it? That women should feel threatened by some other women, but not you. Well, I think that's true. I mean, I think women do sometimes feel threatened by other women and by other men. Um, but I think I was able to to be friendly with men and women. Um, I like men and I like women. I've got friends who are men and women. And, and my approach to life has always been to try and see some good in people. Sometimes I didn't like some men and you, I didn't like some women. You came, yeah, you you find it hard to have a good word to say about David Cunliffe. David Cunliffe, on a personal level, is a nice guy. Oh, well, but, that's the first thing I've heard you say that's complimentary about David Cunliffe. Yeah, on a personal level. In the book, I'm talking about David Cunliffe, the leader. And, and what I, you say in the book is I have to be very careful what I say about David Cunliffe. Why? To go for it. No, I, I don't want to. I don't want to be um, cruel or unkind after all these years. But the truth is that David was not the right leader for us from 2011 to 2014. The election results showed that what was it was actually not 2011 because that was David Shearer. But but I yeah I know it's easy to get confused and well we can, we change we change them every so often. And but David was hungry for the job. He campaigned for the job, which I felt was was wrong because he campaigned against Phil Goff and against David Shearer for the job. Why is that wrong? If you think you can do a better job, yes. But but to be fair, Phil Goff had basically just got the job, and then David Shearer had just got the job, and and you know. But if got... you if you're convinced that you're the right person for the job, and that these guys aren't the right people for the job, and time would indicate that they weren't the right people for the job. Indeed, nor was Cunliffe, but that's by the way. Why wouldn't you campaign in the best interest of the country and the party? Because in a party, you're not just an individual. You're a part of a team. And to be a leader, you need to have support of that team. You need to be able to work with that team. They need to want and need you as a leader. So it's no good being the lone ranger that said, I'm, I can be the leader. I want to be the leader. You you actually need to, to be part of the team that... Develop, helps develop you to be a leader and that was part of the difficulty for David. The caucus did not support him as a leader although he although he obviously felt that he could be. In 1996 you along with Sutton and Withere and Cullen and Goff mm-hmm. went to Helen Clark to tell her to step down. Mrs. 2%. 
and you described this as one of the most awful experiences of your political career. It was. Why did you do that? Well, I think you've got to put it into context. After the 1993 election, Mike Moore had run that campaign, and he lost the election... Um, by about two seats. Which and is a great deal less than anybody anticipated absolutely. before we took over. Yeah, and, and, you know, he'd almost, in fact, a, a two or three seats that were marginal, if they'd gone Labour's way, we would have been the government. And and I'd been, I was returning to Parliament, having lost in 1990, was standing in Miramar, and campaigned hard for Mike Moore uh, as leader. He was going to be the next Prime Minister. After that election in 93, there was the coup of, of Mike Moore in that the, he was um, he called for the election, um, the caucus vote, but um, there had obviously been a campaign, and, and I know to this day that Helen wasn't involved in it, but there was a campaign for him to go. And so he was voted out at, in 93, not long after we got back into government. And what so you suggest in the book is that he was always seen as a disposable leader, and the plans were already afoot to get rid of him. So even though he did remarkably well in that election, he still, the machine ground on. The thing in the book I say is, I didn't know, and many of us who were outside the parliament didn't know the machine was grinding on because we, were, we weren't part of the caucus. We weren't part of, of any discussion that we would change the leader, except Trevor Mallard. Uh, and Jim Sutton had both received phone calls um, about suggesting there be a change. I didn't receive one. Phil Goff, Judy Keel, others hadn't. So, so we weren't in the know that that was going to be the case. So between '93 and '96, we were a very divided caucus because of the split over over who voted for whom. It, and we were heading to the 96 election. It was about May '96, and Labor was on 15 percent and um, Helen was on two. New Zealand First were ahead of us in the polls, and the Alliance were on 12. And um, a group of us senior MPs were, were really frightened that we were going to see the end of the Labour Party, that we would be replaced as the, a major political force in New Zealand. Was this the worst you've ever felt about the party? It was the lowest I've ever experienced the party to to, to go in the polls. Uh, even at our worst time in the, in the nine years in the last opposition, we never reached that. So uh, uh, five of us decided that we needed to say to Helen, you're just not cutting the mustard here, you're going to need to go. Now there's a dispute in the book as to whether we had a horse. As far as I was concerned, it probably would have been Mike Moore, maybe not. But we never went to Helen and said we've got it, we've got the numbers, we've got a, uh, we've got an alternative to you. We it went. seems unimaginable that you would go to a leader and say time to go if you didn't have a replacement, mm. at least notionally, in your head. Well, and that's that's a good point. And I have to say, notionally, some may have. But it wasn't something that we said, we're going in to say Mike will be the leader. And you hadn't said to Mike Moore, we're no. going in to no. ask Helen to go? No, we're not, we didn't say to Mike Moore, we're going to say to Helen, you go and you, we want you as the leader. No, we did not. And we were naive. And I think, that's, I think Helen might have said that. We, but we went in and we said, we are in dire straits here. The party, it, the party looks like it, it's on the way out unless we can do something. We've only got a few months to the election. And, uh, and and it was a it was a very hard thing to do, and I can still remember sitting there with tears running down my face talking about it because it wasn't her fault. It was just we were getting nowhere. We we just couldn't connect with the public. 
But what happened next, I think, and I, I still believe it was something that that moved the dial, was that Helen just stared us down and she said, I'm going nowhere. She went out of that caucus and, and I think she, she went out with some real steel and she started to speak out, to speak up and to really articulate what we were wanting to do. We got to the 1996 election a few months later and we'd gone from 15 to something like 27.5% in the poll, almost enough to be in government because the National Party got something like 32%. And then it got down to the negotiations and, and Winston went with, with Jim Bolger. Uh, but that's always used as an example of don't get rid of your leader too soon because they can come back. Remember Helen Clark, how down she was, and then she came back? It, that is that is true, mm. um, but it wasn't that we didn't. It, she wasn't liked or capable or competent. She was all those things. But there was something, and, and the fact, if you looked at the polls, at two percent, they were they weren't listening to what she was saying. So it was it was hard for her. And leader of the opposition is a horrible job. Nobody really listens to the leader of the opposition. Become and the leader, and suddenly you go from two percent to you know forty percent. And how much of that was the fact that she was a woman? Well, it's a really good point. But there was a woman prime minister. Yes. So, so but not voted. Not voted, but but was herself struggling, as as we know, because yeah. she had got rid of Jim Bolger. A very good example of not getting rid of a leader too close to an yeah, election. Yeah. Um, and she um, and she was she'd also uh, sacked Winston, um, and then held together by a, a motley crew um, to hang on to the election. So so you know she was already in difficulty, and maybe for both of them it could be they were women. Although I don't believe it was um, particularly for Jenny because she was the prime minister. She had all the incumbency and, and the advantage that go with that. I'm talking to Dame Annette King, who's now New Zealand High Commissioner to Canberra. That phrase you used, um, quoting Helen Clark, I'm not going anywhere, is pretty much what you said when, as deputy leader with Andrew Little, there were mutterings about how it was time for you to go. And you said, I'm not going anywhere. And then what, two, three days later, you went and stood aside for Jacinda Ardern. Well, the mutterings weren't coming from the Labour Party and they weren't coming from the caucus. But if you recall, the mutterings that I should go came from the media. Um, in fact, the first article written was from Audrey, Audrey Young. And two years before she said I was the right person for the job, that Andrew Little had made a good decision, etc. And Two years is a long time in politics. Absolutely, I found that out. <laughs> um, but but also, so, so it came out in the media and, and um, I was down in Blenheim and a reporter phoned me, and I hadn't seen the story, and, and it said, you know, um, Audrey Young has said that um, it's time for you to go. And I said, well, I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. From then, I went home from that, and I thought about it, because I'd already announced I wasn't standing in Rongatai, and that had been the hardest decision I made. You were going on the list. I was going to go on the list, but I, but being a constituency MP... Why did been, you do that, by the way? was time for renewal in Rongatai. I'd, I'd been there for 25 years, and... And and you know I was I was then sixty nine. It was time for a, a new person, and I had a new person in Paul Eagle. He was young, he was keen, he was hardworking, and and I I had, saw a person that could would, could take over from from the electorate. So thinking about it for a year, 
I decided I would stand down from the seat. I announced it before Christmas in 2016, and I was comfortable with, with that decision, and that was the hard one. Going on the list, I thought I could go on the list and perhaps in government, perhaps do health again. Would be hard to make the souffle rise again, but you I would think be happy to six do it. years as Minister of Health. Anybody in their right mind, I would have thought, would say enough already. But no, you wanted to keep it. At I that point, loved didn't you? the health portfolio, even though people said it was a hospital pass. Mm. I remember an interview you did with me before the two thousand and two election. Do you remember the ones you did out at Avalon? Oh yes. Gosh, you were hard. Uh, but, uh, but you mean hard good, of course. Hard good. I mean Thank hard you. good. I definitely mean hard what? good. Um, yeah, but you you go right into the issues. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, so so when it came to going on the list, I thought I could I could perhaps be part of a government. The more I thought about it, and the more the the by election came, Jacinda won really well. The more I thought. No, I should leave altogether. Did you know her very well before that? I first met her in London when she was working there in the Cabinet Office, um, and it would have been uh, around uh, 2004. She was uh, a young intern there. Um, She had something special, you could tell that. She just was able... She was absolutely charming and and could connect with people. And I, I met her at Jonathan Hunt's place, and I thought this this young woman's got something. I didn't know she was going to go into politics at that at that point, but she did enter politics on the Wellington list of the Labour Party. Um, so she came in on the list um, from the Wellington list in the way that we we moderate and put people into positions, and and she just um, she just. Sean, and even just you couldn't have imagined that seven weeks out from election, she could have pulled that one off there. No, but but what was so honest about this whole thing was that Andrew knew he couldn't, and what he what he says in the book is that he knew that when he went out on the hustings, people wanted Jacinda to be there, and in fact, polling that was done at that time showed that people liked him more when Jacinda was with him. And he got to the point when, you know, the poles were sinking like a stone. And he said, um, I can't do this. I'm it's not hard not to it. be cynical about that, though, isn't it? I mean, here you've got somebody young and good looking and fresh. And that's what matters, as opposed to policies or experience. Or... But she had policies and, 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 and she had been nine years in Parliament by then. What she hadn't had was the same exposure um, in the media not around the rest of New Zealand. Certainly she'd had a lot of exposure in Auckland and was incredibly well-known and well-liked in, in Auckland. And when you got out of Auckland and got down to Wellington, you know, we we had our own bubble, if you like. We were very much Grant supporters, um, and, and, and I voted twice for Grant Robertson to to be the leader. Um, and, but... But she was she was already creating her own her own space. So it wasn't just because she was young and, and good looking. She was very articulate. She had done a lot of policy development work, um, particularly in in the children area and social social policy. Um, so you know, I suppose you could be cynical, but I'm not because I could I know that she had done far more than just be a pretty face, if you like, which some critics have tried to label her and still do. Stardust and all that. Yes. Um, in those times where you you didn't vote for Helen Clark and wanted Helen Clark to go, voted for Mike Moore, voted for Grant Robertson and not Andrew Little, so on, nobody ever bore any grudges. You never belonged to any particular faction. 
How did you manage to avoid that in the faction-ridden politics of the Labour Party? Well, I'm an Australian now, and if you want to see faction politics, you look at the, the Labour Party of Australia. They, they have formal factions. What, what you have in New Zealand uh, are loose groupings of people, and sometimes around issues. So it could be groupings around, around uh, social issues, or it could be groupings around some economic issues. So we don't have those, those formal factions. So you could actually move from, from being in support of one thing to being opposed to another thing and, and, and still be uh, within the broad church of a Labour Party. Right. And, and so uh, if... I started off as as part of the Jim Anderton, Helen Clark, Fran Wilde, Russell Marshall group when I came into Parliament. And one of the things we did before the 84 election was to have a meeting in Fran's house to decide who we would vote for, for the Cabinet of 84. And and we'd already got our ticket ready, and it was going to be Helen Clark, and it was going to be Jim Anderton. Uh, We didn't succeed in either. We were outvoted by others. But you will see that I'm often uh, said to be of of the centre-right of the Labour Party. I've often said to people, how did I end up being there? And Trevor says in the book, well, she was, except when it came to health. <laughs> but I, I always saw myself probably as one of those that are, are pretty comfortable um, in the centre of the party. Some, sometimes uh, people would say, but and true in health, that I, that I was, I believe in universalism. I believe it in terms of social policy and I think it should, we should have universalism for children in terms of support for families. Uh, our, our old age pension, if you like, I see those as being solid cause of a really good society. Um, but others, because I was in the, 80, the 84 to 90 um, cabinet, well I wasn't in the cabinet, I got into the cabinet in, in 89, so the last year. Um, I that was, must but, have been fun. Oh, it was awful. I got, I, got in, I got in when Geoffrey became the leader, cause, because I was voted in on a Tuesday and on the Friday, I think it was, Longy stood down as the leader. I don't think I was responsible. I think it was more likely the return of Preble and, and, and Douglas. You say happened. that because you tried to make peace between Roger Douglas and David Longy. Three of us did. In vain. Three of us in the caucus, and we were backbenchers. Clive Matthewson, um, Jim Sutton and I. And, and it wasn't, we weren't formally asked to, but there was discussion about the rift between them was becoming so obvious. Um, in fact, when you read the book, you, you realise just how big it was. Do you think that it went to personality as well as politics? I think I think it was um, politics. I think it was primarily the poli- politics. Po- primarily because politics. they were both personality-wise, they were both very, very different as well. Yes, but they'd they'd got on very well. I mean, they were all part of the fish and chip brigade, which was before my time. But you know, there was Bassett and Longy and and um, Douglas and was it Cagle? I can't remember. So they had all got on. That all been friends, and when we approached them and said, "Look, you know, for the party's sake, for the government's sake, you you two need to work together," I can still remember them saying, "No, no, no, we get on. You know, we don't have a problem." So they they didn't think they had a problem personally, but as you see in the book, they they were then uh, starting to communicate by message and note only, even though they were like meters apart. Yes, a floor or so apart. Uh... So we've talked about how important it is, I think we've talked about how important it is to feel comfortable in your skin, right? Mm -hmm. David Cunliffe did not feel comfortable in his skin. It's kind of a a code for mm, feeling like somebody's 
acting from the inside out without impediment, isn't it? I think so. You're comfortable in your skin. Most of the time. Why did you never want to be leader? I suppose... I'd I mean, had, did you? No. Never? No. I never saw myself I never saw myself as an MP to start with. I mean, that wasn't my... You called idea. yourself an accidental MP? I was an, I was an accident. I mean, Fran Wilde and Helen Clark talked me into standing in the old Tasman seat when Bill Rowling stood down. And the, at that stage, I think there was 12 candidates, one woman and 11 men. And, and I did it. I did the thing. I, I went out on around the branches and I, I tried to garner support. And Fran wrote my speech for the big day. Um, and uh, Ken Shirley won the nomination. And I thought, that's it. I've, I've done my best. I had to borrow a car. I had to take leave from work with no pay. I've done this. But a few months later, the two of them came again and said, look, there's this seat up the road in, in Horofenua, and it's a bit like Tasman. Why don't you put your name in? Oh, but at least it's closer, I thought. So this time there were only four of us, uh, and Jim Anderton was the president on the selection panel, and on the night I won it, I became the candidate. I thought I'd have time to, to get known. There was a poll not long before that election of 84, 13% of people knew who I was and I was going into an election. We'd never won that seat. It was um, a national seat, a rural seat. Margaret Shields held the the Kapiti seat, but we hadn't held the Horofenua seat. Why do you think you won it? Well, it was a tide. You know, the, you know, the 84, it was the, it was the tide. I mean, I came in on the rising tide um, of Longy and, and the change from nine years of Muldoonism and people had had a guts for They wanted change. And that's what happens in politics. I've been on the winning and the losing side of that. And so I, I came in um, as a member of parliament with something like 440 votes. And, and it, I, it was a surprise. I never thought I was going to win. So time passed. You did all right. You learned to like the place. Again, why did you never want to be leader, even during those times where you could have been? You really could have been. Well, I suppose first I was a sole parent with a, a child, a, a daughter, um, and when I went to Parliament she was a very uh, tender teenager um, and and she was my priority, um, although I do f- still feel guilty at the times that I didn't perform my parental duties as well as I could have, um, but, but she was a priority. The eternal I, maternal guilt. Yep. I had, I had it right from the beginning. The first day I had dropped her off at daycare in, in 1973 when, when my former mother-in-law said how terrible it was to be putting your child in daycare. So, so I'm, I'm actually riddled with guilt in that respect. But I know Amanda's that, given you a free pass on that, though, oh, she, she? she has, and she, she thinks I'm, that I have got nothing to be guilty about. I hope she, I hope and she means it. And now you can uh, redeem yourself with all those grandchildren. I am. I'm, I'm called Granny Annie, and, um, and and I'm a much nicer grandmother than I was a mother. I was always in a hurry as a mother. I, things to do, um, and to my shame, I will admit this, when Amanda was three months old, she could hold her own bottle and feed herself because I was busy writing something or getting a meal ready. Um, she laughs about it, but she was very self-sufficient from quite an early age. Is that really the case, though? You wanted to save your family Family's, from politics? Family is really important to me, and it is for most people, but we're a really close family. Um, you know, the, my, my two sisters, my parents, my 50-something cousins, aunts and uncles, we've always been a really close-knit family. Um, 
My family kept me grounded. You never could get above your station with my But family. even so, I mean, your profile was high already. So why would being leader have made anything that much more difficult? I was kind of getting to it because I'd watch leaders and I'd watch what they give up and the impact it has on them, on their family, on their their lives. And, you know, you, you look at you look at all the leaders we've had, whether they're national or Labour, it takes a huge toll. And I, I got particularly close to watching um, Longy, um, but also Helen. She had to give up so much to be a leader. I wasn't prepared to give that much up. I'm a much better 2IC, I thought. I, I can support, I can do some of the, the tough things that need to be done in a caucus. I can organise. I can still be a good constituency MP, but I didn't want to give all that up to be the leader and you have to give up so much and to be leader of the opposition I mean it's pretty thankless and you're giving up so much of your life mm. also I met Ray um, and it's nearly 20 years be 20 years on Anzac Day that um, we got together and after one failed marriage and finding somebody that that, that you know I, I really really liked I wasn't going to jeopardise that, that relationship and would it have do you think well, it's a big ask. Um, you know, it was a big enough ask anyway. Uh, Ray's his own man and he's he's been very successful himself. But but he still has to give up a lot when you're an MP to follow you around, to go to things you're going to, um, to give up what might have been a, a, a nice holiday somewhere because I needed to do something else. I take it from this that you might be a little worried about Jacinda Ardern. No, I'm not worried about her. I think she's leader. She's got a young baby and a partner. Yep. What's she going to have to give up? Well, she no, she is already giving up things, and she knows that. She's, she has to give up perhaps um, time that she would like to spend with Neve. She knows that. Um, what she's got that, that perhaps others didn't have is she's got both Clark's family and her family, parents, who are a fantastic support to her, and they are around her. And she's got Clark. I mean, um, I, I was on my own. Maybe it would have been easier, and maybe I would have thought of things differently if I had had a partner. But when you're on, when you're on your own, um, your, your mum, dad, care, caregiver... Uh, cook, bottle washer, the lot, and and so she is. She's incredibly well supported, but she is giving up a lot to be the leader, and she knows that. Um, and and I I suspect you know she will do. I I, I suspect she will win again. You can never be sure in politics, but um, I think she's got a, a period of time. She'll be the Prime Minister and, and then she'll move on with her life. You must suffer from deja vu, though. I mean, here's capital gains tax back on the table. And I didn't realise Kiwi Build was your idea. Well, actually, it was Campbell Roberts and um, Alan Johnson's idea two extremely good people from the Salvation Army and I was the housing spokesperson. They came to me and said, you know what we need? Affordable houses with a revolving government fund that funds them, you build them, you sell them, the money comes back in and you build more. And that is the basis of Kiwi Build. And then we had to decide how many would we build in 10 years. And we argued about the number and we came up with 100,000 and we based that on the fact we were building 30,000, 40,000 houses in the 70s. Why couldn't we do this in New Zealand over 10 years? Well, that's a good question that people will ask again and again. Perhaps do you have an answer? Yes, because I think people are being premature. Goodness me, what, it's 15 months since they got into government. Um, and it, you, you, they have to scale Over-promise up. Over-promise and under-deliver. It's well, a big mistake. 
I think that's a very good lesson, but um, I think they're going to deliver because they've had to they've had having to build up a building industry with all its elements for Kiwi Build. But the, it's not the only part of the housing policy because, of course, there's state housing, there's there's rentals, there etc. And I think what they're putting together with even with healthy homes, you know, with insulation and and so on, they're putting together a really good housing package that this country needs. We shall see. Yes, we shall. One of the things that you are very firm about in the book is treatment by the media of your daughter Amanda's brush with the law. She was a teacher at the time, and you attribute her giving up teaching and moving to Australia to media focus on what happened. Yes, I do, and and I was bitter about that for a long time. And someone asked me recently, am I still bitter? I suppose no, I'm not bitter, but I was really hurt for her. She was, she did crash my ministerial car. She did injure somebody in that crash and she was charged. But she was also, she was charged with dangerous driving and she was charged with possession of one ecstasy tablet. It re- made the headlines of all the newspapers in New Zealand, big headlines. They held the six o'clock news to have it as breaking news from the court. And when she was found not guilty, on the drug charge in the High Court and the, and the charge on dangerous driving was reduced to careless driving. There was no reporting of it. And, uh, in fact, it took me ringing Mark Sainsbury in TV1 at that stage to say, Mark, how come it hasn't been re- reported that my daughter was found not guilty and the charges were thrown out on the drug charge and, and the, the driving charge was reduced? And Mark, to his credit, had it on the TV1 News about two days later, just before the 6.30 news break. Um, and there was no pictures. or It was just one sentence. And, and I always felt, and if, in fact, if for years afterwards, if you went online, even as recently as, say, five years ago, the Herald still hadn't changed the fact that she hadn't been found She'd been found not guilty on on the drug charge and the reduced driving charge. That's not to say it was a, a terrible time for her and the person who was injured. Um, and look, I, I totally accept that. But I felt the, the media hadn't treated her fairly and she felt she couldn't stay in New Zealand because it would be brought up over and over and over again. And, you know, what Google's like, you only need to go and Google people and see what pops up. Do you think she's better about it? Oh, she's fine about it. I mean, she she went to Australia. She um, left teaching and she didn't have a job, but she was decided she'd go to Australia. She got a job in the call centre at Westpac, uh, and she's just done remarkably well. She's their senior investigator um, at Westpac uh, into fraud, um, credit fraud. In fact, she's just she's just left there. She's starting a new job next week. She's been headhunted. She met a really nice Australian bloke. Married and you has sound it. like, whoa, that was quite hard. Yes, well, but she found a really nice Australian. Bloke. I've actually met a lot now, but um, <laughs> but but um, and we we he calls me um, his favourite mother-in-law. I am his only mother-in-law, but um, and and of course they've had William, and so her life's turned out well. And there there, there is, as I th- always feel. Some good comes out of some adversity, and it certainly did in this case. But I still felt the media weren't fair on her. I wonder if it's changed. I think the media might have cautioned itself since then that you you can't focus on the family of 
politicians in that fashion quite so much? I think that if you use your family as part of your political weaponry, you open yourself up. And I desperately tried not to do that um, because you then can't say, um, why are you reporting on what my child did when you had actually been um, highlighting them, taking them around, showing them off? Mm. And so my advice to my colleagues always was don't, don't bring your family into it. You are the politician. Of course, you can't avoid it sometimes, um, and particularly a spouse. They, they kind of buy into it. But, um, you know, I've seen lots of politicians' children badly hurt by their parents being politicians, and I wish their children could be left out of it. Amanda sounds very resourceful, actually. There's a story that you tell where when you were Minister for Employment, she was unemployed. Yes. And you said, yeah, you can't be doing this. So what happened? Well, she... she um, I don't know. She was a bright kid. She left school. She did a, the year journalism course, and she decided that journalism wasn't for her. Everybody else in the class was older, and they knew so much, and she knew nothing, she said. So um, she dropped out, and uh, and I became the Minister for Employment, and she had by then gone on the dole, and I, um, I was horrified. I drove round to one of the times that she wasn't living at home, knocked on the door, and she got out of bed and looked at me and I said, you are not going to be on the dole. I'm the Minister of Employment and my daughter is not going to be on the dole. And and uh, said, you've got to do something. So she said, well, I'm going to be a joiner. So she got into a pre-apprenticeship course as a joiner and then did a five-year apprenticeship as a joiner, became a qualified joiner before she became a teacher. She's very handy at fixing things around the house. But... Um, she she was never on the dole again, but it did take um, one of my stern talkings to her for her to, to get off the dole and make a move. So now you're in Australia, close to her, close to her son, your grandson, and to raise yes. sons and your mutual grandchildren. Yes. Um, you would probably be seen as quite a good person to mend some fences with Australia, would you? Um. I think there's a misunderstanding about how bad the fences are because what I've realised, and, and I kind of knew it, but our relationship on just about every level, whether it's in defence, whether it's in security, uh, political, people to people, is incredibly strong. There's no better relationship between two countries in, in the world, and that's that's recognised. And it's you know it's developed over many years. If if you see our our contacts within the bureaucracy, there's open doors. We're involved in many of their working parties, etc. But we are we certainly have not been happy at at their approach to New Zealanders residing in Australia and to deportation. And the Prime Minister, um, and, and in, in fact, it's it's not just this government. It, um, I know that um, you know the governments in New Zealand have been unhappy about changes that have been made in our in that part of the relationship. And I mean, that's quite a big thing. It is, and I think we've got to, we've got to keep working on it. My job is when I've been. Why meeting, would they treat us with contempt in that fashion? Um, I think that it wasn't wasn't just about us. And in fact, it might not have even been about us. But of course, their deportation policy doesn't have brackets. In New Zealand excluded. It's a deportation policy for everybody. And I, I kind of understand it a little better when when you realise that because of our isolation, our geographic isolation, Australia stands between us 
and what have been a large number of of refugees to start with that, that come into Australia, their concern over security, their concern over people breaking the law, and I think it has all combined for them to take a pretty tough stand on anybody that that transgresses, whether they're that whether they're a refugee or whether they are a New Zealander living there. But we do believe that um, that we need to need to work with them. We don't think the deportation policy is fair. Um, and our main argument is if a New Zealander arrives in Australia and, and, and they could be as young as his six months or two years or whatever, young children, and then get into difficulties when when they're now 32, they have grown up in Australia. They have had, had, had all their upbringing in that environment. Their families there, some of them have got no family here at all. In fact, a recent one was a Cook Islander, had never been to New Zealand. Um, and so so we believe that they aren't applying their deportation fairly in terms of New Zealand. And, and, and the special relationship we have and the fact that New Zealanders come in on a, um, a special visa to be in Australia, which enables them to live and work there. And, and we are working on this issue with the current government, and if there was a change of government, we would certainly be working with them for, to look for changes, um, to bring, perhaps to look for their deportation to be more like our own. We deport people. Um, that, you know that we 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 deport um, bad people back to their country, uh, but we do in New Zealand believe that somebody that has lived here for ten years cannot be deported, and we would we want to talk about these issues with with them. And I have already had meetings. I've had meetings with with uh, Minister Dutton, um, and, and and several other ministers, and and we will continue to raise it. The other one is the citizenship issue and there was um, a program put in place when Ma- Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister uh, with um, Jacinda Ardern to have a pathway to citizenship for New Zealanders living there and um, and it, it started but it has stalled and we wanted we continue talking about how those that have made their home in Australia can become citizens because we do treat Australians differently to the way Australians treat New Zealanders in Australia. One thing that I found in your book to be quite surprising, Dame Annette, your involvement in dirty tricks <laughs> in the Horofenua electorate, the revelation that your campaign manager, Lloyd Falk, wrote fake letters to the newspaper <laughs> purporting to be horrified that Jeff Thompson was going to stand again. Was that Horofenua? Yes, it was. And were you involved in this? Uh, I saw. It was a bit of fun, really, because remember the days you could... Fun? It was a bit of fun where you used to write anonymous letters. You never had to put your name on them. And in one newspaper, the Horofenua newspaper, there were eight anonymous letters written about me and how terrible I was and how I shouldn't win an election. So there was a little bit of tit-for-tat went on uh, with writing anonymous letters. However, those shame. may have been real anonymous letters, whereas <laughs> the ones you made up with <laughs> Lloyd Falk Wait, who will know? were completely For- Fortunately, false. Kim... Uh, having anonymous letters stopped, and so so did the practice of people uh, writing. But of course, nowadays on Twitter and Facebook and all those social media, the real cowards put up their 
uh, criticism anonymously. Hey, I look forward to the unauthorised biography. <laughs> well, actually, Jacinda launched the book last night and she gave the unauthorised biography, according to her, and gave a number of examples. Name one. Well, she said that she, that I gave her a very stern telling off when she took me to Waiheke Island and and made me walk up the hill to the meeting we were having. Do you know Waiheke Island? It's got a quite a quite steep hill. Mm-hmm. And she and I said, "How are we getting to the top? Shall we walking?" Um, and she said that um, I wasn't at all happy. That in fact, I got a taxi back down and got the taxi driver to to uh, record how far I'd walked. And she said it was just a kilometre. And I said, "Well, actually." You missed out the most important part. I was wearing stilettos. Yeah, it all depends on the shoes. (laughs) That's Damon at King.